Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Noah Newman, Associate Editor. Solving the soil health puzzle? Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and it's puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality, soil-first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local soil-first dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at SoilFirst.com. That's Soil1ST.com. Or call 800-356-SEED. All right, let's talk about Tom Burlingham. He no-tills right across the road from his childhood home in southern Wisconsin. He's also been cover cropping for 15 years and recently made what he calls an eye-opening discovery about one crop in particular. On this episode of the Cover Crop Strategies podcast, contributing editor Martha Mintz talks with Tom about that discovery and the overall impact cover crops are having on his farm. He tells us what's working and what key adjustments to make when something's not. Plus, Tom shares his no-till origin story, which began in 1982 and reveals how after 40 years, he's still finding a unique way to get some use out of that old tillage equipment. Everyone, uh, today we have with us Tom Burlingham. Tom has been no-tilling since 1982 and cover cropping for a solidly impressive 15 years in southern Wisconsin. Tom, how are you today? Good. Good, good. So, Tom, why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about what the land is like, where where you farm, what kind of challenges are you facing? Well, we have basically two parts of the farm. One is very hilly, light soil. It's a pure sandy loam. And it's got rocks on it, and we initially started uh, no-tilling in 1982, so we wouldn't have to pick the rocks. And at that time, we didn't know that you could plant a crop without any risk. They still have residue on the soil and plant a crop and be successful. And so we kind of figured out, yeah, you can have residue covering the soil surface and still get a crop. So that's the first question we had to answer back in those days. What were you growing back then? Well, we're dairy farmers here in Wisconsin and um, milking 60 cows. So we had a location with corn and alfalfa, you know, and we we pastured. We were, we were kind of grazing in the summertime, too, so we had a lot of pastures. And then we, as we, time went on, we, we, we converted all of our farm to no-till coming out of alfalfa hay. So we were able to no-till corn into it. And eventually the cows went down the road, and we we started growing sweet corn, and then we eventually moved into more soybeans and and wheat into our rotation. So it was real easy to transition every field right out of hay going to corn, and that was that's a match made in heaven. So yeah, I was curious about that because alfalfa is kind of one of those things where the the ground takes a beating if you go over it a lot, but it's also a perennial crop. So how was that to to no-till into? Very easy. We were surprised that it worked so easy. The field was already smooth, and and back in those days we would we would kill the hay stand in fall, and so we had this brown out there in spring that we we just no till into it. And all you had to do was get the seed slot closed, and uh, you were good to go. And that all that was at that time uh, was a John Deere seven thousand planter with a with a ripple coulter out front making a seat slot and we just tightened down the, the uh, press wheels in the back to close the seat slot and it worked pretty good. And you know, we were told, geez, you know, you can make it work on the uh the lighter ground but you'll never be able to know till the heavier ground. 
So we kind of proved that notion wrong, too, over the years. And we just kept going. And our farm uh, kind of lays east to west. And as you go towards the west, the soil gets better. And we've got some pretty good soil ones, so we were able to know soil into that, too. So. Well, and in that time frame, we had, uh, we had corn on corn and some of our better soils. And um, we would take you. You do a little yield comparison, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd no, no till half the field and uh, work up half the field. And after about three years of getting the same yield, I'm like, what am I doing out here? So that's, that's why we transitioned no till on the better side, too. So, so you said that you planted, planted uh, brown into that alpha, but I hear you're not planting into, into much brown these days. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you know, the you know, we hear all about how you got to keep a little root in the soil at all times. So we've been planting the corn and then killing the killing the alfalfa and in spring after planting. So we get pretty aggressive with the herbicide doing that because we know that uh, you got to have that alfalfa dead. You don't want any little pathic effect next time you come around with the alfalfa crop. So. But not so much the case when you talk cover crop. So tell me a little bit about how you got into cover cropping and and how that has changed your rotation to what it is today. Well, you know, we I've got every uh gone to every seminar and conference and field day over the years and got a lot of money invested in that. So we, I was listening to people like Steve Goff and Dave Brandt years ago at the Millfield Conference and how they were having success with these cover crops. And I'm like, well, let's try that. Because I think, uh, you know, I'm just one of those people that try stuff. And I'm like, well, let's try this. So, of course, we were skeptical at the time, but we started out by growing just oats after our, our wheat crop that we were not going to see back in the A most of it. So it comes out a week, goes back into alfalfa, get that plant in the late, late uh, July time frame. So we grow the oats and they die over the winter. Well, geez, now we got to try annual ryegrass. So we were planting a mix of annual ryegrass, radish, and crimson clover, and that worked for several years. After that, we went to a multi-species cover, and we got that dialed in that I think is pretty good, and we're getting uh, real good corn yields following that. Um, it's it's mostly medium red clover, sorghum sedangrass, and a lot of other cool season broadleaves in there. So, so you said you yeah. dialed you dialed in on that. Um, you know, did you do some experimenting or, or well, did you I just, dial in on that? I just like the way it breaks down and I, I like the way it works and, and we've got everything in that you're supposed to have out there. We got stuff going Low in the canopy, like the clover, and high in the canopy, like some sunflower and safflower. And we've got warm season and cool season for grass and broadleaf, and, and it just seems to work really good. We've got um, peas, cowpeas, or field peas, cowpeas, hairy vetch, lentils, got rape, and some radish, and um, slax, and uh, all kinds of stuff out there, mustard. Did you ever have anything that you saw really wasn't working or anything that you could pick out that you're like, wow, I really like what this particular um, part of that mix does, or is it just kind of a broad overall, it all works well together thing? It seems to work well together. Um, and we don't go wild on the hairy vest, just a couple of pounds, and 
five, six pounds of clover works really good. And you try to keep the cost of that mix under twenty five dollars. Now we're probably gonna go above it this year just because everything has gone, you know, up in price. In 2011, 12, and 13, we hired an airplane to fly on our cover crops. We, 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 you know, when it comes to the corn, we put cereal rye on, and we've been drilling it. But I thought, you know, let's try, let's try to fly on three years in a row, and we did that, and and we were disappointed with the results. The results were just, you know, in inconsistent. You know, one year, it, it seemed like anything with a north-facing slope didn't even grow. And, of course, 2012, it was so dry, we didn't get a very good catch. Yeah. And in 2013, we had slugs because we were too stupid. We didn't know slugs would eat it. So we learned that. So if you're flying stuff on or broadcasting, make sure there's no slugs out there. And the slugs are pretty easy to scout for us. And they don't bother it so much if you drill it? No, they don't, because what happened was the slug was eating where it germinated. Those little green, you know, you couldn't ever root down because the slug just ate it as soon as it turned green. And, I mean, there was nothing. That 90-acre field, I could not find one spear of rye. <laughs> so, so, I would assume you don't do a lot of broadcasting anymore. Uh, tell me how... Well, actually, our pendulum has swung back the other way, and I do have a... 30 acres field of muck soil that we have been broadcasting and I've done that the last two years just I got a fertilizer spread and we've been putting about 80 pounds 70, 80 pounds out there just to see what would happen just to see if you know maybe that soil type um, you know being high in organic matter we might get a change for this stuff to root down so what I did last year is I did most of the field broadcast but then I ran Oh, maybe four or five acres with the drill. Just to, when we're just going to find out this spring if we've got more growth and how thick it is, and just a little comparison to see what the difference is. And, and what kind of soil did you say that was? That was a muck soil. So, uh, so a uh, kind of a dense, high soil. Yeah, it's high organic matter. It's I don't know, twenty percent organic matter probably. It's called Adrian muck it's soil type. Okay, interesting. Uh, muck is what I associate with the corral. <laughs> oh. um, so, uh, which would definitely have high organic matter as well. So, how, tell me, kind of walk me through a year of your, of your rotation. You've talked a little bit about how you've established things, but, but tell me, you know, when you're establishing cover crops, how you're establishing cover crops, and then when you terminate them. Well, most of our ground is in a corn soybean wheat rotation with two covers. And we do pick off a field occasionally and say, hey, we're going to see this one day this year. You know, so that, uh, and it's all seeing the fancies, you know, how much hair we want, do we want to make and, you know, where and all those sorts of things. So that all has a little bit of bearing on it. And one thing I wanted to point out about this alfalfa, you know, back in the day when we had more acres of alfalfa, we would have a seven-year rotation. We would have corn, soybeans, and wheat. And then we would plant the alfalfa, and the alfalfa would be in there for four or five years. So you had this seven, eight-year rotation. But what we've come to find out is that if we're going six years or nine years in this rotation, so, you know, the corn soybean wheat two times or three times, the alfalfa will yield much better if it's been out of alfalfa for six or nine years compared to three. So Really? Yes, yeah, that was a real eye-opener for me. And my crop consultant, said yes. He said, the longer you've got it out of alfalfa, the better it will yield when you put it back into alfalfa. 
That was not very much of an eye-opener. Did he have any so, idea why that would be? Well, we don't know why. I, you know, it's just one of those things we're going to sit back and just uh, have, have out of hay for six years or nine years now. So how, how, we, much, how much did he feel better? Oh, gosh. 10, 15 percent, I would say at least. That's significant. Yeah, it's, it was, I, I was just thrilled. You know, I, I just, I was surprised. So, okay, so now we got fields coming up this year that have been out of hay for six years. So I got one going back in. You know, I try to keep our hay on the high ground, catches the wind a little better, um, maybe, you know, drive a little better. I'm a dry hay guy. We're not one of these people make, make much hayage, the bailage. But um, we do on occasion make bailage. So you plant the corn after, uh, you know, and, and then after the corn comes off, you, you plant, uh, we plant cereal rye. We run it, we go 15 foot, uh, John Deere no-till drill, we run at a slight angle to the corn stalks. It does a great job of processing those stalks, chops them up a little bit. And then we come in in the spring and we'll, the first thing we'll do is we'll put, um, some broadleaf residual on there. Come back a few days later and we'll plant the beans. And then we wait till the beans are about two, three leaf stage when the, when the rye is old, knee high to waist high, somewhere in there. Then there'll be 5,000 pounds of biomass out there per acre, something like that, and then we'll kill the rye. And that works pretty good. Now, if it's a dry year and you can perceive that you don't have enough moisture, well, then we'll kill the rye earlier. You know, we'll kill it shortly after planting. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to take some time once again to thank our sponsor, Solving the Soil Health Puzzle, Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and it's puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality, soil-first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local soil-first dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at SoilFirst.com. That's Soil1ST.com. Or call 800-356-SEED. And now, back to the podcast. Do you also apply some chicken litter? We'll get to that. <laughs> sorry, jump in the gun here. Yeah, then then what we'll have, right is, I mean, the day the beans come off, we're right out there planting wheat. Um, you know, we've got to get that in right away because we got a short season here. And, you know, so we want to get that, that, that wheat planted, you know, somewhere in the 5th to 10th of October time frame, somewhere in there. And uh, then we'll, you know, we follow the still-needing book of wheat growing, and we, get, we try to get pretty good wheat yields. And as soon as that wheat comes off, I still drill like the weekend after the 4th of July, so we are ready to go with that next cover. And as soon as that last bale of straw is coming off those fields, we are out there drilling our cover. And your next. Yes. And that's our, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 species, whatever I got around here. And so then we get the neighbor to put this, it's a dried cake type chicken manure from layer manure and we'll put one ton of that on and actually last year we put two ton on the uh, price of fertilizer was going up so I'm like yeah let's put two ton on so that's when we get our manure in the rotation 
is when that cover crop has germinated and it's growing, well, mid-August, somewhere around there. And you don't worry about the trucks out there driving around in this cover crop. It seems to grow anyway. You don't, you know, a month away. In the middle of September, you'll never know you're out there with trucks because it's still there. So because you're no-selling and can't incorporate it, um, does, is that cover crop a, a critical part of being able to use the chicken litter, or is that not right? No, I think it works in harmony. I think uh, you're pulling all that, uh, pulling all that fertilizer, not all of it, but a percentage of it into the, the biomass that's created for that mixed cover. I mean, we, we get to the end that. Shoot, that stuff would be five, six, seven feet tall. You know? So there's easily... Six, seven thousand pounds of biomass out there. So now is that the next spring, or is it that fall that it's that? That fall. Uh, one year I did sell some to a neighbor who wanted to feed his beef cows, and so I sold a few acres. And yeah, it ran three pounds of the acre of uh, dry matter. So yeah, there's, there's six thousand pounds out there. Yeah, I was curious as a hay guy. You know, is there is there the temptation to harvest that? Um, and uh, provide like like you did in in that well, there is. The forage. There is, but there's there's balance there too. Um, and we all know what the price of inputs did in yeah. the last year here, you know, and and, and potassium is, is critical on this stuff. And I still don't know how some of these guys can cut that fertilizer back because I've done it uh, about twenty years ago. I I quit putting fertilizer on. And there was nothing there. Two years later, there was no hay there. <laughs> so, so I don't know how they do that. I'm, I'm not the one to talk to about cutting fertilizer rates. It is the fuel that runs the engine to grow alfalfa hay. I don't know how to get around without it. So are you getting some of the potassium from the cover crop? I guess I, I was curious if you were going to harvest the cover crop itself for, for hay. Um, but are you saying that you need it as well with nutrients? Well, if you, har- if you harvest it, you have to replace that with the potassium that's left the left I understand. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, if, and if we're going to alfalfa, well, when that wheat crop comes off, boom, we go out there and plant our alfalfa right away. And you got a drill set that's got all these attachments on it, you know. I mean, it's got the narrow press wheels and the uh, narrow gauge wheels, and we're down to about 13 pounds of alfalfa, and we're getting full stand. So that's pretty good savings if you drill and get shit. So, you know, and then you go out there and we, we use generic select control to volunteer wheat that grows up and careful about making sure that, that all that chaff coming out of the combine is uniform across the field. So we don't want these windrows of volunteer wheat screwing up our, uh, our alfalfa seeds or the miscovered planting. Now, you talked about how lengthening your rotation helps your alfalfa yield. What have you seen as far as what cover crops would do for your your cash crop? On some of the lighter soils, we like to have that residue out there so we don't get the transpiration and the, and the soil drying out. That helps. Mm-hmm. And we're also we're creating a little nitrogen for the corn. And we're planting, and you know, you get five, six pounds of medium red clover that's knee high in spring. You're planting into. Uh, we're getting that to break down. I mean, we don't have to worry about uh, any late season nitrogen, like Y drops or anything like that. We're getting that from the cover crop breaking down. It's pretty good stand of clover 
And it's not just the dominoes on top, but we're getting a reverse to break down that clover, and that's feeding that corn. So, you know, it's, we got those micro, we're not getting enough out of our microbes breaking down these colors. I see these people, um, that shouldn't be critical, but I, I guess I want to get the most possible out of a color crop. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's one of them right there. The other one is creating a lot of biomass with the rye, with the soybeans. You know, we've got soybeans growing in there. If you've got, you know, crop crops are all about utilizing extra sunlight and extra water. So if you've got extra water in May for that rye to grow the first couple of weeks in, in May there, shoot, let it grow. You know, don't, you're only talking an extra 10, 12 days to grow that stuff from a, a foot high to two and a half foot, almost 30 inches high. Um, it is an impressive play. <laughs> yes. And, but we can control that. You know, we can say, okay, and on all seeds and all there's rain to grow. Okay, look at this. We're going to let this go and we're going to let it grow. Okay, well, if it doesn't rain when we're supposed to, well, you can still go out and kill it. You know, you can, you can control all that. Our toolbox is full. You know, we're, we're not organic producers. We don't have rules to follow here. We, we're, we're just, we try to go with what we know and try to, try to trust a little science along the way. And we've got our crop consultant is, uh, fully gifted when it comes to the land grant university recommendations. He comes right in the front door of the shop and every week in the summertime, so we've got all that. And, you know, then, then we've got other information. They read books and, you know, try to figure this out on our own, you know, and see what works and what doesn't. And I get a whole list of things that doesn't work, so. <laughs> do you also feed your corn green like you do your, your soybeans? Yes. Yes, but we, we get real aggressive in, in uh, getting rid of that grass. We don't want that volunteer wheat to, to interfere. But the, the trick here is now what we'd like to do is have that, that corn come up and burn that medium red clover back and have that come back in the corn. And what will happen is that stuff will green up when that corn's about waist high. We've got this nice mat of clover underneath it. And surprisingly, that stuff, once you cut the light off under there in that canopy, that stuff dies in August. So that's that's what we're trying to do is just burn it back, the herbicide, injure it, and, and then have it come back, you know, then you then don't have to hear feed. And, you know, our, we have a, one field that's um, down to one field here, because it's that 30 acres of muck ground. And so we grow two years of corn and, and one year of soybeans. So that, when, it's, when it's corn and corn, then I hear feed it. And we'll use a mix with my, it's a conventional three-point hitch deal that I, that's our inner feeder, and we took some units off. I think there's, there's 24 units on it, now 17, and it's just a little six-row deal, and uh, we're planting uh, any grass imaginable, <laughs> and they all die, <laughs> but the broadly you seem to live, you know, the, the, the clover and the flax and the rape and the cowpea, uh, Underneath the Yes. I, I don't know why. I, I don't know if it's because the, the, the leaf surface is, is larger or how it's put together, but it just seems like whatever grass I've tried, name one, I've used it, and they all seem to want to die you know, in, in late August when the lake gets cut off. They look great. You know, a month after you plant it, you know, whether it's 
annual rider at perennial rider at festival and rider oats or whatever. And I think maybe I'm just going to go to oats because it's cheap and it's going to die anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just we just we've never had it over winter. And you know, if you you get the corn, this is the way happens. You get the corn that's you know eight tenths of crop, a four week head start. So we're out there be free planting this stuff. And it gets no light, you know, from about the 1st of August to the 1st of October. And then you run the combine over it, and it covers it all with residue. And come spring, you go, oh, geez, I wonder why this died. Well, <laughs> right? So that's what you're up against. Right. But the broadleaves will, they will live. So, so that's interesting, though, because you said that the, the clover that's fully established will die in August in the corn, but then you're, you had success interfeeding clover? Yeah. Yeah, and that's something. I don't know, it just kind of runs out of, just kind of runs out of gas. And some of it will make it, you know, so okay. That's all right. Yeah. So, Anything else on, on cover crops and, you know, how they've impacted your farm or, or changed how you... Well, the, the number one is erosion control. I mean, we got the right soil very, very steep, and we, we couldn't hold it. You know, you just you just couldn't hold them. You get these heavy spring rain, you know, we, we get some washout. And even though it was no-fill, long-term no-fill, uh, once we got the cover crops going, hey... That, that's working pretty good. So we were a, able to take out a couple of the shallow waterways because we were holding that soil with with the, with the cover crop. And were you then able to crop more acres, or? Oh yeah, a little, a little bit. I would say, you know, these waterways were continuum. But uh, you know, then then we got cocky about ten years ago. Wow, you can take all these waterways out. Well, now I didn't start put back in. Water is a of course. Right. We had uh, we've had a couple of major rain events in February when the ground was growing well. Uh, when the water is running, it's fine. So and we weren't able to hold it a couple of years. We had to fix them up and put the water away. Which, okay, fine, you know. Okay. But, so, uh, you know, we've got these covers, that ground's protected. You know, we've got 6,000 pounds of biomass out there from the next cover. This soil's not going anywhere. Right. So, after all of your experimenting and successes, Hubbercraft, um, I, I understand that you tried Camelina. Um, how did that? How did that go, and why did you try that? Well, we were looking, and we're still looking for a, for a uh, broadleaf companion to be planted with cereal rye into the corn stalks, and. Camelina's not the answer. It's not going to work. Uh, we're looking for a rally that you could plant, you know, the first week in November here in southern Wisconsin and have it move through the winter. Well, Camelina's probably not going work so well for that. But uh, we did grow an acre and a half, and I still got some on the way here. And we just, we, I've been throwing it in with the rye that we've been broadcasting on, on this muck field. So we're going to see if it, if it any of it grew here. The problem with Camelina is that the, the seed is the size of a fly pack, and if you, you're planting an inch, inch and a quarter deep with the cereal rye, it's actually too deep for it. So, any ground is cold, and I've, we've tried a lot of uh, different broadleafs uh, to try to grow with the cereal rye. Maybe I want something that's not out there, but... Uh, have you tried winter canola? No, we have not tried that. 
Well, that might be one to look into in the next. I know they're playing with it uh, out here in Montana where I'm at a little bit. Okay. So. Well, that's pretty much a rape, and yes, I have tried planting rape out there, but maybe I got the wrong variety. I don't know. Yeah, well, they, they got some stuff out there. Okay. So, well, now, I, I know you've been no for ages, but I hear that uh, you still have some use for tillage equipment on your, your place. Um, but before everybody gets up in arms, uh, being no-tillers and, and strict tillers, uh, I hear it involves a welder. What do, what do you do with your old tillage equipment and the, the random metal you find around your farm? Oh, uh, well, I've made some metal sculptures with it. That's a Highest and best use. But when we, when we make a rut, you know, we're not immune to making a rut once in a while. It happens. And then we, we've got a disc and we'll, we'll, we'll fill that in with a disc or I got a roller I made. It's like a cull emulsion. I offset the roller. It's kind of like an offset disc. And, and that seems to work pretty good to fill that stuff in without burying the residue. That's kind of the key. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put tie lines in once in a while here and there, and, and you got to work those down with something to get them smooth again, so. Yeah, it's, it's, not the, it's not the end of the world. Sometimes it has to be done. Um, all right, well, I think, I think that about covers everything that, that I have. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or, or share with other folks who were interested in trying cover crops? Well, you got to keep working at it. You know, the Lord helps those who help themselves, and, and, and you're not going to figure it out out in a day or two. It, it takes a while, and you just got to keep working on it. But I can tell you with great confidence that there's benefits out there to be had. So, Do you have it all figured out yet? No, absolutely not. We're all students here. We're all students of this game, and that's we're just trying to get better at, at what we're doing. We're trying to protect the water. We're trying to protect the environment. And it all works in harmony. Like I said, it just, it, 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 we're not surprised that it works, but I am really surprised at how well it works together. So. And does it take that full 15, 20, 30 years to, to get those effects? No, I don't think so. I think you can see a difference in your own soil. You know, naturally you gotta see it. You can see a difference in about three or four years, you know, that here you've got this stuff that's either grease, dust, or cement. And once you cut off the tillage and allow the soil to become soil again, it, it just, the worms come back and you can just take a shovel and turn it over and you can see the life in it and see the aggregates. And, uh, yeah. Excellent. Well, Tom, yeah. thank you so much for your time today and I uh, look forward to seeing what your, your next experiments uh, turn out like. Sure, sounds good. Thanks to Wisconsin no-tiller Tom Burlingham and contributing editor Martha Mintz for that conversation about cover crop strategies. And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor. Solving the soil health puzzle? Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and it's puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality, soil-first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local Soil First dealer. Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at SoilFirst.com. That's Soil1ST.com. Or call 800-356-SEED. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at CoverCropStrategies.com.